6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jude, verse 6. As you know, we are exploring the book of Jude. Interesting epistle. But uh, verses 5, 6, and 7 happen to take three examples from history of corporate punishment. And what I mean by that is not corporal punishment, but corporate, there were a group were punished in a peculiar way. A group of people who have uh, fallen away from the truth, who were denied the truth, who are op- in opposition to the truth. Three groups are singled out by Jude to teach us some things. And uh, verse 5 we took last time in which we uh, explored why Israel, wandering the wilderness, was chosen. We covered that last time. Um, Verse 6 deals with a strange set of events, which we'll come to in a moment. Verse 7 deals with Sodom and Gomorrah, which is perhaps more familiar to us and less controversial. But again, as an example where God judged broad civilizations for his reasons. But verse 6, which is sandwiched between 5 and 7, has caused all kinds of strange controversies. So what we'd like to do is examine verse 6 tonight and figure out when did this take place, and perhaps more important, what lessons are there for us. And the angels who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day period. And if you're the average Bible student reading through this, you come to that and you say, what on earth is that all about? Because Jude gives it the back of his hand as if you remember this, of course. The angels who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. There is another passage it might be good to put it in our minds right now. Hold your finger here and turn to Second Peter. This wasn't some kick of Jude alone. Peter himself uh, speaks of this in the, in the second epistle of Peter, chapter 2, verse 4. We find a comparable passage where Peter tells us, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. And actually that word in the Greek is Tartarus. It's not Hades or Gehenna. We talk a lot about that. And it happens to be translated hell in your English Bibles. The actual word in the Greek is Tartarus. It's the only time it appears in the scripture. And I'll come back to that. But it's, it's not a neat place. Okay? Incidentally, the term appears in Homer's Iliad. And Tartarus is as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven according to Homer. So all I tell you, that doesn't mean Homer knew anything about it. It just means the word in the Greek carried that kind of an idea. It's a bad place to get tied up. 
God spared not the angels of sin, but cast them down to Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And then Peter goes on to make his heart. But he, Peter also, just like Jude does, makes allusion to an event that the writers, in each case, presume you know. Now, there are, this, this passage is very controversial. So the particular views I'm going to try and share with you, uh, I'll try to, there, well, actually, there's three views. There's three basic views of this passage. The first view is the cop-out view, which is typically could be expressed that we're not intended to know any more than, uh, than uh, that is here in this brief verse. That's one view. I have a problem with that because uh, it stands between verses 5 and 7, and um, uh, all three of them appear to draw upon familiar Old Testament truths. So I personally believe that that first view is really just an excuse not to dig further, and it's because the two alternative views that I'm about to share with you are both very uncomfortable. They're very peculiar. You know, it's glib to talk about it in an intellectual or literary sense. It's quite another to come to grips with what's implied, if I'm correct, in my view. Now, these angels that sinned, the second view is that these angels that sinned are angels that had to do with the fall of Lucifer. And so the way we go from here is to explore briefly something about the fall of a, some kind of super angel called Lucifer. Now I'm going to use the term for a while, angel, in a broad, generic sense. Actually, we have, if you're going to be very precise, a cherub is not an angel. It's a very, very high special category. But I think we generally use, and I wouldn't be surprised you couldn't prove, if you couldn't prove the scripture, also uses the term angel in, in sort of a generic description of this, of a created being with some very, very substantial powers. We will talk a little bit more about angels in general shortly, but the, there's a particular angel that causes us uh, a lot of attention in the scripture. And there are two passages that uh, will, for most of you, be review, but it would be inappropriate to attack tonight's subject without at least a refresher on Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Let's take Isaiah um, 14. These you remember because they're multiples of seven, by coincidence. Isaiah, and they really are. You know that the uh, chapters and verses were added in the 15th century. I love to see these ancient documents that people find, um, the Akko volume and others, that quote scripture by chapter and verse that purport to be in the first century. Well, that's kind of hard to explain because the chapters and verses didn't come till later. But, but anyway, Isaiah 14, there is a, both passages have a strange attribute. In both cases, the writer, the prophet, is addressing a local, real, live, tangible king. In Isaiah's case, he's talking to and about uh, the king of Babylon. But as he gets wrapped up on that subject, a place in the discourse occurs where it's obvious that his actual target or subject goes far beyond a human personage. And what he's obviously doing is addressing the spiritual power behind the political king. And I won't take the time tonight to read all of 14, but if you did, you'd see uh, Isaiah uh, going at the king of Babylon. But by the time he gets, in fact, verse 11, he mentions how uh, he's fallen, the worm is spread under thee and the worms cover thee. In other words, this king is a fallen, but Isaiah is uh, 
uh, dealing with it. But when you get to verse 12 in this passage, it's very, very clear that without any real warning, Isaiah has shifted gears. He is suddenly talking about something quite different. And from verse 12 through 17, there is a, it's almost like a little insert, where it's only a parenthesis, in which the Holy Spirit, speaking through Isaiah, is addressing the power behind the king of Babylon. And verse 12 is the famous verse, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, you who didst weaken, or prostrate, if you will, the nations? Lucifer. This is where we get his original title. But he fell. He's fallen from heaven. Something occurred to put him in disgrace. But then we get into verse uh, 13 and 14, and we find the source of his error. There are five I will statements. This Lucifer was the number one Angel. We'll discover that from another passage we'll look at. He was in charge, if you will. Anyway, uh, verse 13. For thou hast said in thine heart, where the whole problem starts, is through pride in the heart of Lucifer, where he says the following. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That's Satan's ambition, to be worshipped. Now, we'll take the time to dissect the ramifications of each of these and what the real Hebrew says, but you, get the, you, get, you clearly get the message. Very powerful, but still not number one. And he aspired, apparently, in some strange time, in some strange way, a rebellion, which we'll look at shortly. Verse 15, yet thou shalt be brought down to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. Now, this is a forecast. See, Isaiah is saying here that you, Lucifer, who fell through pride, are going to be brought down. Verse 16 is an interesting one. This is yet future. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee, and consider thee, saying, Is this the man who made the earth to tremble, who did shake kingdoms? who made the world like a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who opened not the house of his prisoners. Now, as you can probably guess, behind each phrase, there are acres of theological commentaries as to what that might mean. There are those that believe that this whole event occurred sometime between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. There is linguistic reason to recognize that an enormous interval of time may have, occurred, may have occurred between the first two verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, period, paragraph, new subject. And the earth became without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And uh, the verb there in the Hebrew, argue some experts, is a transitive verb implying action and that it, the earth wasn't originally, but became without form and void. And this gets intensified because in Isaiah 45, 18, Isaiah, God speaks to Isaiah and says, I did not create the earth, tohu vubohu, that is, without form and void. And so on this apparent uh, discrepancy occurs the possibility that there's an enormous interval between Gen uh, Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. Now they sometimes call, and there's a lot of ideas about that, generally going under the label the gap theory. 
there are aspects of the gap theory that I happen to think are correct, but if you subscribe to the gap theory, that also probably implies all kinds of things you don't really mean either, so be cautious about that. Many people uh, in that small little crack drive trucks through them and come up with all kinds of ideas, and I don't want to get into that tonight. We cover that on the Genesis series. You can listen to the Genesis tapes, and I probably told you more than I know on those tapes uh, for those of you who want to chase that. That's Isaiah 14. That's a, a, a pivotal passage that you should be aware of. And the, an, a comparable passage is Ezekiel 28. And Ezekiel, in his case, is also a prophet dealing with a particular king, an earthly king. I, I should say I'll use the term prince here because it keeps it a little straight. The prince of Tyre was an actual guy. Josephus tells us his name was Ityolobus, or I-T-T-I-O-B-A-L-U-S. And um, here spoken of as the Prince of Tyre. But as Ezekiel wraps up his, his um, he you know, gets excited about his message to the Prince of Tyre, again about uh, verse 11 or 12, he shifts gears. And the scope of what he's saying clearly does not fit this human king, the Prince of Tyre. And he speaks, he changes, and he talks about the King of Tyre. He uses a different phrase. Also, if you study the whole chapter, you'll discover that the prince of Tyre, that is the human ruler, gets killed by being pierced through. He predicts how he's going to die. But the king of Tyre is going to be burned. So you recognize that they're two different people. Whatever it is, is what, just linguistically, you know that somehow he's talking about two different people. He uses a slightly different title in each case, and the destiny is slightly different. But the, the differences are far deeper than that. Let's pick it up about verse 11 of Ezekiel 28. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man. Now, by the way, don't be thrown by that phrase. That's just a, that's a uh, familiarity that Ezekiel uses of himself. When God speaks to Ezekiel, he says, Son of man. It's not a title in some um, theological way. It's just, it's just a label, a nickname, if you will, of, of Ezekiel. So if you're familiar, if the book of Ezekiel is full of that, you've got to get used to it. That's just like uh, a nickname, if you will, of Ezekiel. Son of man. Take up lamentation upon the king of Tyre. And this strikes you strange by now because if you've been reading the chapter, it's all been about the prince of Tyre, this literal ruler. But now the Holy Spirit, in fact, says, The king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That's King James' language for saying, sealest up the sum. The person he's talking to here is the epitome of wisdom and beauty. That's strong language. In fact, the expression in the Hebrew is that there can be no more extreme expression. It's a superlative. Wisdom and beauty. Then it goes on to say, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Whoops. I don't know of any king of Babylon that goes back to Genesis 1. You follow me? So suddenly we realize, clearly, there's been a shift of subject here. The person that is being addressed was in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and the gold. And the workmanship of thy timbrels and of thy flutes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. One thing that should strike you is the Eden that's described here doesn't seem to be the Eden that's described in Genesis verse two, chapter 2 on. Because there we think of it as a, I mean, at least we visualize it with 
trees and foliage and, and, and a terrestrial kind of place, don't we? This Eden is described in the same vocabulary that we use post-millennially of the New Jerusalem and so forth. Part of what overlays this whole study, and we'll take the time tonight, but I'll just throw it out so you'll be thinking about it and dig it on your own. Acts chapter 3 speaks of the second coming of Jesus Christ as the time of the restitution of all things. Restitution means put back like it used to be. Put back like Eden? Could be, but maybe it's a different Eden than you and I think of. A pre-fall Eden. And so when we read Revelation 22 and we talk about New Jerusalem and foundations and stuff, it's a whole hyperspace you and I probably have no capacity to deal with. And these precious stones may be just their way, vocabulary-wise, of talking about light or talking about a dimensionality that goes beyond our three-dimensional physics as we think of it. But also, this person was in Eden, and he was big news. Perfect. But he was created. Another side of this is, don't forget, he is not some kind of super god. He may be superhuman, but he's created. As fantastic as he may be, or was one time, he is still a created being. Easy to forget. There's a popular book in the demonology called Between Christ and Satan by Koch. Tragic title. Tragic title, because it implies equality. Christ was not a created being. John 1, first three verses of the Gospel of John should straighten that out for you. Satan was. Now, verse 14 said, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. That's clumsy language to say that he was, well, he was anointed, that was he was appointed to office. What office? that covereth. In other words, he was in charge of everything. We would say it differently, but the King James translators in trying to render the Hebrew said, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Another way of saying it is he was in charge. And he's a cherub, which is a most powerful kind of angel. We know of four cherubim that are around the throne of God. We find it in, in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4. Whenever we see the throne of God, we see these four cherubim and they're strange creatures. Apparently, Satan was one of those. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways. From the day that thou wast created, and then I have a word that I always, whenever I see it in the scripture, almost always I mark it, put a circle on it, red underline, the word till. The word till. What a, what a, momentous word that can be. Israel's eyes are blinded until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Such and such and such until, da-da-da-da. The word until or till generally is a very pivotal word. Well, here, thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created until iniquity was found in thee. And what's the iniquity? Well, you go back to Isaiah 14, it tells you. The iniquity of pride. The reason God hates pride is that's how the whole thing started. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. And thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. 
Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. That thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy merchandise. Therefore I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It will devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold me. All that know thee among the people shall be appalled at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. By the way, the word merchandise is from the Hebrew word meaning to go about, and it can be translated either in two words, merchandising like trafficking or slander. And the word slander is the word for Satan. I mean, that's what the word Satan means, a slanderer. So it's in the other side. So the word merchandise, me, it actually comes from the, from the Hebrew root that can be translated either way. Okay, that's a little bit on his origin. We've got a little glimpse now where Satan comes from. There's a chapter in the Bible that describes in one sort of summary overview his whole strategy and goals. That's Revelation chapter 12. And it might be useful to take the time to review Revelation chapter 12 briefly. Revelation chapter 12, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon on her feet, upon her head twelve, a crown of twelve stars, and she being with child traveled, uh, uh, cried, traveling in birth, and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven, and it cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered to devour her child as soon as it was born. Verse 5, And she brought forth a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared by God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, I'm not going to make this a study of the book of Revelation. That would really derail us, but there's a few key points here. The first question is to understand the various people that could be introduced here. The first question is, who is the red dragon? You don't have to guess. Because in verse 9, he's defined for you. As you read later in the chapter, it says in verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, to deceive at the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. This is where we understand that Satan rebelled and was thrown out. When you put Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and Revelation 12 together, and there's lots more, but those are the, probably the three key passages to sort of try to synthesize, to try to get an understanding here. Satan clearly was very powerful at one time, was perfect at one time, was in charge, rebelled. A third of the angels apparently were allied with him, and they blew it and were thrown out. So we know who the red dragon is in this scenario. The next question is, and this is where most people get screwed up, is who's the woman? And it's very tempting. There are many commentators that are very competent commentators that identify the woman with the church. And I love the way Chuck Smith puts it. If, the, if this woman is the church, she's in trouble because she's pregnant. The church uniformly is used in the New Testament as a virgin bride, not a one to give birth. The woman is identified up here with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. That's not the zodiac. There's only one place that the sun and moon, 12 stars, show up in the Scripture. And your principle in the book of Revelation is every, the entire thing's in code. 
Everything in there is in code, but every code is deciphered somewhere in the Scripture. The Holy Spirit's engineered the book so it would take you into every other passage in the Bible if you take it exhaustively. And the only place you'll find 12 stars, sun and moon, is, remember, Joseph's dreams. Jacob understood the dream. Joseph, remember, he first of the sheaves that bowed, there were 11 sheaves that bowed down to his sheaf and so forth. Then the next dream, he, and he told that to his brothers, he was already a little unpopular. Um, <laughs> and you can understand the brother's point of view. Um, then he had this dream where this, there were the stars, and 11 of the stars and the sun and the moon bowed down to him. And at that point, he told that dream around. Not only does his brothers get upset, but Jacob, his father, got a little miffed by it. Are your mother and I going to bow down before you also? See, he recognized Jacob, and he rebuffed the youth that way, but in so doing, gives an identity. What are, who is the woman that is, is crowned with the sun and the moon and the twelve stars? Idiomatically, in the scripture, Israel, in a way. It's Israel in the sense that she starts with Eve. Because the man-child is the seed of the woman. What woman? Israel, and it's not Israel in the sense of starting with Abraham. Israel in the sense that she starts with God's declaration of war on Satan. The declaration of war on Satan is Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman. What woman? The woman of chapter 12 of Revelation. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Two seeds. The seed of the woman is a biological contradiction in the Hebrew. The seed is the man. All of us have had enough biology to understand that phraseology. The seed of the woman is a, in the grammar of the Hebrew, predicts the virgin birth. And in Isaiah 7, 14, and in Matthew, it is the virgin, not a virgin. Proper name. Very important. So the man-child thus is whom? Jesus Christ. Who gives birth to Jesus Christ, conceptually speaking here? Not the church. Israel. Israel was ordained from Eve on. God's plan was to present the deliverer. That was his commitment to Adam. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, May God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.